You know, there are people today that know an awful lot about the Bible, and yet they don't realize the uniqueness of the Scriptures. Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> this is the last day of 2023, and uh, I trust that you have grown in your walk with the Lord through this past year. Uh, it is always, and every year is different, and yet every year is the same, isn't it? There's always ups and downs, there's always high points and pleasant things, and then there are always low points and unpleasant things. But hopefully you can look back over this past year, and you can thank God for His presence at all times, in all the circumstances of life. Hopefully you can look back over this past year and see where God has been directing you and even where he's been using the hard things to develop godly character within each of us. And as we do that, it gives us hope for the future because we know that God is going to do the same thing in 2024 that he's done in all the previous years. Scripture says that I will never leave you or forsake you. And that is a tremendous blessing. The circumstances of life are always going to change, but God never does. His promises never change. And so I'd like to spend just a moment here before we get uh, too far along in the message, just to thank the Lord for the year past, to ask for his blessing and his direction on the year to come, just to give us all an opportunity to commit ourselves afresh to him. Join me, please, in prayer. Heavenly Father, throughout the scriptures, you have given special events, memorials, particular days, events that have happened that are supposed to mark the milestones of our lives and to serve as reminders of your goodness. You gave to the ancient Israelites a whole series of sacrifices and a whole series of special days of feasts and celebrations, all of which were designed to remind the people of you. And in the New Testament, you've given us similar things. You've given us the communion, you've given us baptism, you've given us one another and the testimonies that we share with one another about your grace and your faithfulness. So Father, as we look back over this past year, help us to see those things where you clearly were working in our lives, carrying us through difficulties, directing our steps when we had decisions to make, Father, help us to remember, to remember those things that will strengthen and encourage our faith. And Father, help us to remember those promises in your word that you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you will direct our steps and you will give us wisdom when we seek that from you, that you who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion even to the day of Christ Jesus. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that has gone before us. 
Thank you for all that lies ahead of us. And help us, Father, to walk into this new year as people of faith, trusting in you, fixing our eye upon Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to look as he did to the joy that was set before him, because that enabled him to endure the cross and to deal with all the things that came his way. Father, keeping our eyes fixed on you and fixed on eternity will enable us to deal with all the things of life as well. Father, we pray for your wisdom and direction. There are lots of things in this new year that we don't even begin to comprehend. We can't see them. It's, it's dark before us. We pray that you will provide each one of us all that we need as we go forward. Remind us, Lord, that you are the one who holds our life in your hand and that you are the one who has promised to conform your children to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will have eternity with you forever. Thank you for our time this morning. Lord, speak to us from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, some of you probably noticed in the bulletin, if you took the, a few moments to look at that, and I hope you do every Sunday, look at it in the afternoon, not now, but you'll see that there was a little reference in there to a Bible reading plan for the church, and you probably thought, wow, what's that all about? Well, here's what it's all about. Um, we're going to embark on a Bible reading program for the whole congregation in 2024. And I've structured it a little bit differently this year. Uh, it, it doesn't cover every page of Scripture, and it doesn't require reading every single day. I picked five days a week. So you can break it up, however, you know, Sunday through Friday, or Tuesday through Saturday, or Monday through Friday, however might seem to work best for you. And most of the time we're only reading two chapters, though there are a few occasions where you might have to read three. But it's designed to give us a gigantic overview of the, the, the sweep of Scripture. So we start in Genesis and we end in Revelation. And along the way, it's kind of like flying cross-country, okay? You, you, you know where the Atlantic Ocean is. You know where the Pacific Ocean is. You know the boundaries. And you're just going to see some highlights along the way. But it will all be in chronological order. And it will give us all something that we can talk about. When we get together for dinner or we get together for some fun, we get together downstairs for some fellowship, we've got something to talk about. Well, what did you think about what we read this week? What did you learn in, uh, in our reading for this week? So we've got something to talk about. Plus, it builds a good camaraderie among us because we're doing the same thing. And most importantly... It's getting us into the Word of God. That's the key to a life that's changed. To get into the Word of God, get the Word of God into us, and let the Spirit of God do His sovereign work of transforming our lives. Now, I'm going to be sending out each Sunday afternoon, and you'll get one later today, the reading for the week. Okay, So every Sunday afternoon, sometime or evening, you'll, you'll get that just for that week. 
But if you don't have email, or I don't have your email address, you can give me your email address. But if you don't have email, we have a whole chart, a few copies. Luann will have them with them at the close of the service today. You can pick one up, take it home. Sometimes when you look at big charts like that, you know, it's like, oh, man, that's so big, I'll never keep up. And, but if we look at it one week at a time, one little bite at a time, we can get the whole thing done. Uh, so, and feel free to share. I think also uh, Rhoda mentioned about posting it on our website, so if you want to go there and look and get a picture of the whole thing, it'll be up probably sometime this week or next, and uh, you can take advantage of that. I hope you will join me in reading through the Bible in this coming year. All right, that's enough of that. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Our Christmas cards... <clears throat> And Christmas carols are filled with references to the Magi, aren't they? To the wise men. Uh, we sing songs like, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and so forth. And, and I love those Christmas carols, but I don't get my theology from them, okay? And you'll see why as we progress along. But I'm not going to suggest that we stop singing them. I'm going to sing them right along there with you because they, they express tremendous truths that we need to have constantly reiterated and constantly uh, be reminded of as we sing. But did you notice that there's a lack of hymns and Christmas carols that honor King Herod? I mean, I don't think I have ever, in all the hymnals that I've looked through, in all the Christmas music that I've ever seen, I, I don't think that I've ever seen one that extols King Herod. He's the bad guy in the story, isn't he? And I'm putting these two together this morning because the Magi and King Herod intersect. It's not a forced comparison, but I want us to see the comparison between these two, the Magi, who are Gentiles, and King Herod, who is a Jew and should know better and to see how both of these individuals or all of these individuals I should say respond to what God is doing to set the time frame though you stay in Matthew chapter 2 but I'm going to run back to Luke chapter 2 for just a minute <clears throat> Jesus and his birth are locked into time and space this is one of the things that is quite unique about Christianity. It sets it apart, sets it apart from other uh, so-called world religions because God locks his activity into time. You look in the Old Testament and you see particular pharaohs that are mentioned. You see particular rulers that are mentioned. And, and God locks his activity into time. And, and we can go back in history and we can discern when these things happen. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it is with this event. God locks it into time. Prior to Herod's death uh, is when this occurred, and Herod's death occurred in 4 B.C. You say, well, now wait a minute. How can Herod die in 4 B.C.? Wasn't Jesus born in zero? Well, Here's some of the little quirks of calendar keeping, okay? First of all, there is no year zero. Um, 
it's either B.C., before Christ, or A.D., which means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So when Jesus was born, that was year one. And the year before Jesus was born, that was 1 B.C. So the dividing line is, is pretty, pretty thin there, all right? Before Christ's birth and uh, in the year of our Lord. And there have been all kinds of calendars that have been followed through the years. And when we try to compare ancient calendars, and they kept them differently, some cultures would keep their calendars based on the year of a particular king, and, and it would be the current king. And so you would talk about something that happened in the 14th year of the reign of so-and-so. And, and we see those references in the Old Testament. Uh, and even then, it was a little curious because sometimes one culture would not count the months or so of a king's reign before the new year. Uh, and they would only start with the new year. And so a king might come to the throne eight or nine or ten months before that culture's new year would occur. So he would be reigning for all those months, but it wouldn't count. It wouldn't start until the new year happened. Other cultures started it as soon as he began to reign, and then they, at the new year, would change the year. So a king might reign for ten months, and that would be his first year, and then when the new year came, he would be in his second year, but only ten months had passed. So trying to keep calendars especially across varying cultures, has always been a challenge. But based on the best scholarship that's available to us today over the last hundred years or so, it looks like King Herod died in what occurs on our modern calendar at 4 B.C. So somebody somewhere along the line made an error, didn't they? When they, when they said B.C. and A.D., uh, it didn't quite line up with our modern calendar. But that's okay. We can, we can live with that. Jesus died in A.D. 33, and we know that very clearly. We, we're, we're pretty sure about that. Probably April the 3rd of that year is when it would have happened. So when was he born? Well, he had to be born before Herod died, right? Because... Herod dies in the story, and that's the cue for Jesus and his family to come back from Egypt. And we discover from what the wise men tell Herod and what Herod decrees as far as his infamous law to kill all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem, that it was about two years. So Jesus would have been born about, on our modern calendars, about 6 B.C., and Luke gives us some additional details. He says he was born in the days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now that was a problem for biblical chronology for a while because for the longest time we could only find one period of time when Quirinius was governor of Syria and it was like 8 AD. Well that's not going to work because Herod was dead and Jesus had already been born and did did Luke make a mistake? Well, that has tremendous impact on our understanding of inspiration, doesn't it? Well, here's a 
great example of believing the Bible and not letting archaeology shake our faith. Because there were a lot of years where we could only find one time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Until later on, archaeologists uncovered some things that mentioned a previous governorship of Quirinius over Judea from about 8 B.C. until about 5 B.C. Right at the time when Christ was born. So when God locks things into history, he does it for a reason because he wants us to know that this is a real event. This is not a fable. This is not a myth. This is not something made up just to satisfy our uh, our curiosity or our sense of, of sentimentalism or anything like that. No, this is real, honest-to-goodness, verifiable history. It really happened in time and space. So, we have the, the time frame established for us. Let's think about some of, the, some of the characters that are involved, some of the events. Luke says that this happened, this birth happened that while they were in Bethlehem. Now, we, we've all seen, you know, the Christmas story illustrated or whatever, the Christmas cards, and it's, it seems like Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem and they're desperately asking, you know, where can we, where can we stay, where can we stay? And no room, no room, no room. And, and then finally they get this guy that has an inn and uh, there's a stable back there and they, they let him stay in the stable and... Boy, no sooner do they walk in the door than Jesus is born. Whew, man, we just made it. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that while they were there, it came to pass that it was time for her to be delivered. So they might have been there for a full day or two days or even a week. And all of a sudden now, Jesus is ready to be born. The moment of, of birth has arrived and, and Mary is ready to deliver her child. They're in the, the manger or stable area there. The place would have been packed. It would have been crowded. And uh, she gave birth to a son and they laid him in a manger and all that is exactly what Scripture tells us. But it probably wasn't on the very day that they arrived in Bethlehem. But Luke also tells us that there were some shepherds out there in the fields and that they were watching over their flocks at night. And those shepherds were the lowliest of the low. They were not the upper crust. They were not the shakers and movers of that particular day and age. They were down there in Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, it was in Bethlehem where the lambs for Passover were raised. Those were the, the flocks of sheep that would provide the, the tremendous number of lambs each year that would be required for the Passover celebration. And Bethlehem was only about seven, and still is, only about seven miles south of Jerusalem. So it would be very easy for the shepherds of Bethlehem to get their young yearling lambs up to uh, Jerusalem and to sell them, to have them ready for Passover. 
isn't it interesting that it was there in Bethlehem that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was born. The shepherds are out there watching over their sheep and they're standing around probably with a campfire. That's kind of what you do at night, you know, when you have to be on guard, you have to watch. Some of them may have been sleeping. Surely they would have had, you know, some on-duty and off-duty time that the sheep required 24-hour watching, but when they're out there on the hillside, no group of shepherds can stay awake indefinitely, right? So they would have probably had shifts of guys watching. And all of a sudden, there, near the campfire, an angel appeared to them. Was he hanging in the air? Was he standing on the ground? The scripture doesn't say. I'm going to suspect that he was standing there on the ground. But to have an angel appear all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and begin speaking would have terrified them. And in fact, it did. And the first words out of the angel's mouth were what? Yeah, fear not. Don't be afraid. That is the message, the start of the message that God brings to this earth. Oh, he knows. I mean, if an angel who is a righteous angel can generate fear, what would the appearance of the absolute, perfect, holy God do? <laughs> it would kill us. We would die. We would be struck down in the presence of absolute holiness. And so the first words out of the angel's mouth are, don't be afraid, I'm bringing you good news, good tidings. This is great joy, and it's for everybody. Well, moments later, more angels show up. Were they flying in the air? Were they standing in ranks behind the first angel? I beats me. I like to think they were flying around, you know. That, that, would, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be really cool. But they are announcing goodwill. Goodwill and peace on earth from God himself. Luke doesn't mention a star appearing. But this is Roger's theory. You can take it for what it's worth, okay? I think the star did appear that very first night. And it appeared at such an elevation that 700 miles to the east, a group of astronomers known as the Magi saw it. Now I have to tell you a little bit about these Magi. They were not kings, but in fact were advisors to kings. They were king makers, if you will. The Magi were a group of people, not all of the same ethnic origin, but they were a group of people who were extremely learned in all of the, the wisdom of the world. We see them mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who captured Jerusalem and carried off the, the Israelites into captivity there. Well, he was troubled by a dream. 
it was a dream of an image and he, he couldn't comprehend it and nobody, he, he decided he would test his wise men. They all claimed to be in contact with the gods. Okay, so they claimed a, a connection with divinity there. But I think old Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty smart cookie and he didn't quite trust them. And so he issued a decree. He said, all right, you guys, gather around here. Now you tell me what my dream means. But so that I know you know what you're doing, you tell me what the dream was first. <coughs> and they all wring their hands and they're going, nobody's ever asked that. This is how the game is played, King. You tell us your dream and then we'll go through our mumbo-jumbo motions and all that, and, and we'll come up with an interpretation for you. But you have to tell us your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, the thing is gone from me. That doesn't mean that he forgot the dream. Hadabar, the thing, is the command. The command has gone from me. You tell me the dream. That way he would know for sure that they had a connection with deity. Of course he couldn't, or they couldn't, could they? But Daniel, Daniel finally was brought into the scene. Daniel was one of those Hebrew children who had been brought to Babylon in the captivity, who had been trained in all the ways of Babylon and so forth, but had maintained his faith in Almighty God. And God gave to him the interpretation, the understanding, and the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel, and Daniel told him everything, and Nebuchadnezzar falls down on his face in front of Daniel and says, Blessed be the God of Daniel who delivers, who, who reveals dreams. And he made Daniel the head of the Magoi, the Magi. So that group was already established in Nebuchadnezzar's day. They were his advisors. They had gained all the wisdom from all of the cultures and languages that Babylon had conquered. It was all there. They had all come from various groups and, and had all been trained and so forth. They were the elite the intelligentsia. And because God gave Daniel the wisdom to interpret and declare the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel by making him number one magi. That's how all the wisdom of the Old Testament prophets got to Babylon. That's why Hundreds of years later, these magi living in Babylon, living in the area of Persia, and they weren't just in one city, but they, they were scattered in various places. But that's why when they saw as they were looking in the night sky, and they were excellent astronomers, they could plot the planets, they could plot the movements of the moon and so forth. They knew when eclipses would occur and all that. Uh, they knew when comets would come and go and be appearing, and they knew about uh, meteor showers and so forth. They were excellent astronomers. And all of a sudden, one night, as they're performing their various 
observations of the night sky, they're looking out there and there's, there's something there that we've never seen. It's, it's, a, it's a star. It's a, a glowing luminescence. If it would have been a conjunction of planets, they would have said, oh, planets are lined up again. Check that off the box. Happened last year this time. Happened this year. You know, it's exactly what we expected. If it was a comet, they would have said, here comes that comet again. You know, they, they, they would have not worried about it. It wouldn't have created within them the same kind of reaction if it was something that they were well aware of and they'd had a couple hundred years of astronomy to, to, to depend upon. No, this was something absolutely different. This was something absolutely unique. Was it the appearance of those angels in the sky proclaiming the glory of God? Was it some additional demonstration of God's glory in the heavens? I think so. You remember what happened in the Old Testament when God led the people out of Egypt? It says that a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night led them along. Theologians call that, <coughs> excuse me, theologians call that the Shekinah glory of God. It, it, is, it is a brilliance. It is some kind of uh, demonstration of, of God's glory in the heavens. And it often manifests itself as light. At, at, during the day, it, it was a pillar of cloud and it was low enough in the sky that the Israelites could follow it and they could see it. At night, it became a pillar of fire, a pillar of light. I think that's exactly what happened on this occasion. And those wise men over there in the east, they saw that and, and they realized something that was a part now of that whole learning experience that there was in the Jewish writings a prophet who mentioned a star rising in Judah. And when a star would rise, that was often a reference to a king rising. A star would rise <coughs> in Judah. And these magi, knowing those things, set out on a journey. Now, they would have been quite a, a group of people, I think. We, we get the idea of three kings, you know, three gifts, three people, right? One, one gift per person. Now, this group of magi would have been almost uh, the equivalent of official representatives of a foreign government. And so they would have traveled with their three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, but they would have not traveled alone. Because the journey that they had to make, while, say, Bethlehem is here and Babylon is over here, across the desert is about 700 miles, to make the journey to go up the river Euphrates all the way up to Haran and then to go down the King's Highway and eventually over here to Jerusalem and Bethlehem was a journey of about 1,500 miles. So there's no way 
in spite of all of our wonderful Christmas carols, that the uh, Magi showed up with Jesus on that first night. Couldn't happen. But anyway, they made that journey. And they made it with a caravan. They made it with servants. They made it with an armed guard. They, they did what those kinds of emissaries would do in those days. They didn't travel alone. They traveled in a group. They had 1,500 miles to cover. They had to take their supplies. They had to take their tents. They had to take whatever it was that they needed for that journey. They would be able to stay in towns at sometimes along the way, but other places, they'd have to pitch their own camp. So it was a group. And when they showed up in Jerusalem, now we're going to pick up the story in Matthew 2. When they showed up in Jerusalem, it was a little bit scary. Notice chapter 2 of Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. Not that the star was in the east, but they were in the east. We, we saw his star when we were in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I've got to tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod had the title of king, but he was a servant of Rome. Caesar Augustus was the king, and Caesar Augustus was considered to be divine. And Caesar Augustus was not going to share his position with anybody. So while Herod was a king, he was a king who was down the food chain considerably. He was a little king. We should probably have a small K there. But he was a tyrant. He was a megalomaniac. He was a guy that felt like he was the center of the universe and that all things belonged to him and that he was the greatest person and all of life should be about him. And, and he had several wives, one of whom he killed. He had several sons, three of whom he killed. If you got in Herod's way, he had one solution for that, and it was to kill you. And when Herod heard that this group had shown up looking for a king, Herod's thinking, hey, I'm the only king around here. You mean there's a rival somewhere in, in my dominion? I'm going to take care of that problem. Now, Herod was an old guy at this time, and he was kind of getting a little senile as well. Self-absorption can do that. It can twist and distort our thinking. And when we're absorbed about ourselves and we are focused on ourselves, we just kind of lose touch with reality. He was an old guy at this time. He was going to die. And he knew that on one hand. And he knew how much he was hated because he had issued an order. He had issued an, a, a decree that certain noblemen should be rounded up prior to his death and should be incarcerated there so that upon Herod's death, those noblemen would be killed. so that there would be people who would mourn when Herod died. 
That, that's, that's just a demented mind that he would do that. And the other amazing thing is that when these magi show up in Jerusalem and they ask where Herod or they ask Herod where the king is to be born or where the king is who has been born and it makes sense for him to go to Jerusalem doesn't I mean that's the capital of Judea so they're going there they're expecting to find this new king probably in the palace they maybe expected it to be one of Herod's sons so it was natural for them to go there but Herod was shocked and, and he calls the priests he said okay guys where is this king supposed to be born? Think about that for a minute. Herod must have known enough about the truth to realize that God had promised a deliverer, a king, a savior. And the priests, they were the ones who studied the Old Testament all the time. And they studied it so well that they were able to give Herod an answer. Oh, it's down there in Bethlehem, in Judea. And they even quote from Micah, the prophet, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judea are not least among the children of Israel, because out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall rule my people Israel. They were able to give Herod the right answer. But notice something. Neither Herod nor the priests ever went to Bethlehem to worship the king. You know, there are people today that know an awful lot about the Bible, but it doesn't change the way they live. It doesn't change the way they see life. They don't read the scripture for the, the purpose of conforming their lives to it and of believing what it says. No, it, it's like so much of the other writings of this world. They'll read Confucius, they'll read the Bible, they'll read, you know, the Quran, they'll read whatever. Uh, it, it's just a curiosity to them. Oh, isn't this neat? Look at all these religions from all these places. And yet they don't realize the uniqueness of the scriptures. Yeah, there are a lot of writings in the world that claim to be authoritative in spiritual matters. But it is only this book, locked into time and space, verifiable in so many ways, that really, truly is the Word of Almighty God. Don't ever approach this book as a curiosity. Approach it with humility. Approach it with the understanding that this is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. There are no mistakes in it. It will not lead me astray. It will not lead me off into some false belief. This is the word of God. Now here's a contrast. Those wise men did not have a full and complete understanding of the Old Testament. Because, of course, that's all that was available to them. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. In fact, it was just beginning to occur with the birth of Jesus. But they acted upon what they knew. 
And because they acted upon what they knew, God confirmed their faith. God gave them additional wisdom and insight. They saw what God was doing, and it transformed their lives. But the ones in Jerusalem who should have known, who had that same word of God, but who spent their lives studying it, but doing so in unbelief, when the star appeared, and I'm sure they saw it in Jerusalem that night when Jesus was born. I'm sure they saw it. But they did nothing about it. They weren't curious enough to go see. They weren't curious enough to search the scriptures. It wasn't until some outsider came and asked for information that they gave the right answer. But then Herod was deceptive in it, wasn't he? He says, oh, down there in Bethlehem, you go, you find him, and you bring me word, because I want to go worship him too. <laughs> Herod didn't want to go worship him. Herod was worshiping himself. Herod wanted to go eliminate a rival. And of course, when God warned those magi not to go back to Herod, but to go home a different way, Herod realized what they had done. And in his rage, he issued a decree. When did he issue that decree? When did it happen? Well, it wasn't the very next day. If you would, well, you can stay there in Matthew, but I'll go back to Luke. <clears throat> in chapter 2, verse 21, this is after his birth in Bethlehem, it says eight days later, he was named and circumcised. And then also in Luke 22, chapter 2, verse 22, it talks about the days of purification being completed. So Jesus and his mother and foster father were in Bethlehem for a total of 41 days. 41 days. 32 days for purification, 8 days after the birth for the circumcision and the name, official naming of the child. On the 42nd day, Luke tells us that they're in the temple in Jerusalem presenting the, the required sacrifice, two turtle doves. And it, <coughs> excuse me. And it was there that they met Simeon and Anna, those two old folks there in the temple. You think, what in the world do the old people do in the temple? Well, they pray. They're, they're there listening to the word of the Lord. They're there doing what God wants them to do. And Simeon sees the child, and he takes the child up in his arms, and he says, now let your servant depart in peace. Simeon's whole life had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And when he saw, and the Spirit of God revealed it to him, when he saw Mary and Joseph coming in, and here's this little, you know, 41-day-old bundle of joy, Simeon takes him up and pronounces the fact that this is the long-awaited Messiah. Anna comes up not long afterwards, and, and she pronounces a blessing. What an amazing thing. 
but nobody knew Simeon and Anna very well. Everybody knew who Herod was, but probably very few knew who Simeon and Anna were. And yet, they were blessed to see the Messiah and to worship him. Doubtless, they went back down to Bethlehem. And by this time now, Herod is realizing that the wise men aren't coming back. They're not coming back. And so Herod begins now to think, what am I going to do? And he issues a decree. And he had talked to the wise men while they were there and learned that the time of the appearing of the star was about two years ago. Oh, another reason why I know that this was, uh, was not just a planetary conjunction or something like that is because the star disappeared. It was gone. All through their journey, I don't think that star was visible in the sky at all. Because when they come out from their audience with King Herod, what does the scripture say? The star which they had seen, that's past tense, when they were in the east, appeared, reappeared, and it led them to a house in Bethlehem. Just like that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that had led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, it reappears and it le it's low enough in the sky now. It was high enough in the sky that 700 miles away they could see it. Now it's low enough in our atmosphere that they can follow it to a specific house. And there they find the Messiah. Beloved, God is constantly revealing himself to this world. But so many people like Herod and like the priests, even though they might have the word of God in their laps, they don't believe it. They don't want it. They, they just are not interested. They're more interested in themselves, living their own life, doing their own thing. Oh yes, we, we might believe there is a God, but, but we're not interested in Him being involved in our lives on a daily basis. And we certainly don't want to submit our lives to Him. After all, we're the king of our own life, right? I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Oh, no. <laughs> no. When God reveals Himself, when God shows Himself to us, we need to respond immediately in humble obedience. Kind of like the Magi. They saw that star. They realized from the Old Testament prophets what was going on, and they set out on a journey. It probably took them a little while to get organized. You know, you don't get a group like that together and on the road in just a minute. It may have taken a little while to get organized and to plan and to prepare their gifts and so forth, but they started right away, and they made their journey, and they got to where Jesus was, and they worshiped him. And they were warned by God, don't go back to Herod. Don't go back. Beloved, as we come into this new year, I want us to be a lot like these magi. I want us to be searching the scriptures. I want us to be having our eyes open to see the unique things that God is doing 
and to follow him. Follow him. E even when maybe it doesn't make as much sense as we think it ought to make or circumstances seem to be against it, whatever it is, follow Christ. We have a lot more than what the Magi had, don't we? We've got the whole of the New Testament. We've got the rest of the story, the part of the story of Jesus, the, the Messiah, that maybe the Magi had never heard. So we have no excuse. We have no excuse whatsoever. So let's in this coming year purpose to be following Christ as closely as we possibly can, trusting in him to guide our steps, even in the darkness, even when we don't know what to do next, to ask for his wisdom, not to depend on the wisdom of man, but to ask God for his wisdom and to show us the way to go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these events that are recorded for us in Scripture. Lord, I hate to use the word story because a story almost sounds like it's not real. But this is history. This is His story. The story of our Savior and all of the events surrounding His coming into this world. Father, we thank You for these magi who had hearts and minds that were open and when they saw the glimpse of the truth that you revealed to them, they acted upon it. Father, I pray that we will not be like so many in this world who resist what you're doing, who have no interest in your word other than maybe as a trivial pursuit. But Father, help us please to realize that this word of God is the word of life. It helps us to understand the world that we live in and why it is the way it is. It helps us to know how you have reached out to us and how you have provided salvation for us, how you have dealt with our sins so that we might be forgiven and be made a child of God. Father, I pray that you will speak to our hearts even now and confirm these things to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. May we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ afresh and be led by your Spirit. We pray it all in his precious name. Amen. Amen.